Well, we're talking about last words here today. Have you ever thought about what your last words will be? Now, chances are something could happen by surprise. You may not have a whole lot of time to kind of premeditate your last words, but some people have. Some people um, use their last words to put a, put a smile on your face. Some people use their last words to be funny. Dolores Hope was the wife of Bob Hope, and on his deathbed, she asked him, where do you want me to bury you? You know what he said? Surprise me. <laughs> kind of fits, doesn't it? Some people use their last words to express anger. Uh, the famous actor uh, Joan Crawford cursed, and I won't say what she said, but basically she said, how dare you ask God to help me? Very independent woman, self-made and uh, self-condemned. How dare you ask God to help me? Some people make very serious statements. Nicholas Machiavelli, the famous Italian political theorist, said, I choose hell over heaven because in the former I will enjoy the company of kings, princes, and popes, while in the latter there are only beggars, monks, and apostles. I choose hell over heaven. Charlie Chaplin, the famous silent movie actor, said more with his last words than he probably ever said in any of his movies. When the priest came in and asked, may the Lord have mercy on your soul, he said, why not? It belongs to him anyways. How appropriate. You don't always get the opportunity to pick your last words because you don't necessarily know when your time is up. And over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at the last words of several famous uh, Bible characters. And today we begin in Genesis chapter 24 with the last words of Abraham. Now to be clear, these are not his dying words. Abraham lives for a few more years, but these are the last recorded words of Abraham in all of the scriptures. Do you know what they were? Abraham's last words. Do you know what they were? Dear God, please don't let Isaac marry that girl. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. You know, you, wow, how do you preach on that? Oh, don't let him marry that local girl. Well, those are exactly what his words are. Genesis 24 is interesting. It is the longest chapter in uh, the, the book of Genesis. So there's a lot of material to cover. Outside of the flood, it's the longest episode. The flood goes on for several chapters. Uh, but chapter 24, I think, is 67 verses. And it's predominantly speeches, speeches that Abraham makes to his servant, long speeches that the servant recounts, talking about God's blessings, um, just a lot of speeches, reports, dialogue, but some wonderful lessons on trusting God and serving God. In order to understand the context of Genesis 24, we have to understand what has just happened in Genesis 23. So if you went back just a few verses from Genesis 24... Genesis 23, Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies. Now, that's, this is a huge issue. Um, Sarah, his wife, the mother of Isaac, the child of promise that God has promised, the, the faithful companion throughout his life, Abraham, at Sarah's death, in one sense, has to say goodbye to his past. And now, as he starts to turn his attention to Isaac's marriage, he has to say hello to the future. An interesting thing that parents, kids don't find themselves in that interesting scenario. Parents find themselves in that scenario when they say goodbye to a lifelong partner and they begin to think what happens with the next generation. So Abraham calls his servant and he starts to make out some plans for Isaac. 
Isaac is mysteriously absent from this conversation about who he's going to marry. So let's pay attention to what the Bible says, Genesis 24, verses 1 through 4. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. That means really old. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who uh, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. What's the big point here? Exactly what Abraham says. Do not let Isaac marry Canaanite. I'm old. I'm really old. And I may not live a whole lot longer So I'm putting you in charge to say, if he brings her home, send her away. Do not let him date. Do not let him marry one of these Canaanites. Now, for our um, politically correct ears, this sounds like kind of like ethnic cleansing. There's just our ethnicity, their ethnicity, not there. That is most manifestly what that is not. To understand Abraham's perspective, you have to understand that he was a man that wanted to live in tune with God. If you go back your Bible history, Genesis chapter 9 is after the flood. Uh, the, the flood waters have receded. Um, a, uh, Noah and his family come out of the ark. Everything's good. Noah plants a vineyard. What does he do almost immediately with that vineyard? He grows grapes, he makes wine, and he gets drunk. Now, we don't know what happens. There's a lot of mystery, and commentaries are not going to necessarily help you with this, but he gets so stumble but drunk that he ends up naked in a cave. And we don't know what happens, but one of his sons, Ham, um, exposes his nakedness, posted on Snapchat or Facebook, or I don't know what it is, and tried to get his two older brothers involved in it, but there was shame in exposing your father's nakedness. So the two older sons put a, put a blanket over their shoulder and back over to, to cover their father, to, to honor him instead of exposing him. And in Genesis chapter 9, I think verse 23, when Noah wakes up, he's aware of what his son Ham has done, and he places a curse on Ham, but not directly on Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. So there is a multi-generational curse on Canaan and his seed. And Abraham knows that God has promised a child of promise, Isaac, that will be through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is supposed to be a godly line. And he cannot willy-nilly choose to integrate his godly line with a line that God has specifically cursed. And that's why he says, Canaanites mean descendants of Canaan, which means God's curse abides on them still. And he says, he doesn't doesn't give a whole list of people. He says, Canaanites. Canaanites, that's out of bounds. That cannot happen. And so here's what is happening. Abraham has left everything to follow God. Abraham has gone through a lot of really interesting circumstances where he has learned that he can trust God in every circumstance. So he looks around, and the Bible even says, the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. He goes, you know what? God sure has been good to us. So if we just did a quick, unscientific poll, could the same thing be said of you? Had God been good to anybody this week? Yeah, one or two of you? That's good. The rest of y'all need to pray a little bit more. Do your devotions this week. God's been good to us, so let's be faithful to him. And what you see here is this divine interplay of faithfulness, both from a human perspective, 
and from a divine perspective. God has been faithful to us. He's been good to us. Let's be rigorously faithful to Him. That's what this whole storyline is about. How is this going to work? So he commissions his servant, maybe Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham was wealthy, many servants, and he had uh, assimilated into his family uh, someone who would have been a pagan from Damascus. He's not, he's not a, didn't come from godly stock. Eliezer of Damascus. And Eliezer has appropriated the faith of Abraham's family. He's faithful. He's in charge of everything that Abraham owns. Abraham says, I need you to go, go back to my people and find, uh, find, um, find a wife for Isaac. Now, a lot of people ask the question, well, why? Going back to where Abraham's from, how, how, are, how is that finding a faithful woman? Well, you got to think about this. Abraham started off in Ur of the Chaldees, which I think, if I remember right, is modern-day Iran. He starts off over here, and as, they, as he follows God's call in Genesis 12, they end up in Ur of the, uh, in, they move from Ur to somewhere in Mesopotamia, which would be modern-day Turkey. So Iran to Turkey, um, and his family moves with him. He's got other family members that move with him, but they don't come all the way down to the Promised Land. They stay up in Mesopotamia. And so Abraham was the one who was called. He explains that to his family, and they said, well, if God called you, we're going with you. So his family knows Yahweh. They understand his call, but they were not called specifically to resettle in promise, and that was Abraham's call. So part of his family traveled with him, stayed there while Abraham came back down here. So he is sending his servant to his own people, his own immediate family, that will understand something about this God that has called Abraham to do this crazy thing and leave everything behind. So it's not, well, those pagans are better than these pagans. No, these people have some kind of basic fundamental understanding of who Yahweh is. Well, the servant's kind of, the servant's kind of freaked out because he has the responsibility, not Isaac, to find Isaac's wife. Now, I know there's a lot of parents in here that would really like that opportunity to, to pick your child's spouse. Um, we'll have a meeting afterwards. We'll get that all organized. Bring your dowries. We can, we, can, we can work out some applications and see how that works out. Isaac is mysteriously absent from the whole conversation. Th- so this servant is being told, hey, I, like, Isaac wasn't even invited to the planning meeting. Like, Abraham's like, hey, Eliezer, come here. Um, go back to my people. Find a bride for Isaac. Ready? On three. One, two, three, go. <clears throat> Eliezer's like, I don't think it's going to work out that easy. How, how is this going to happen? And Abraham says something really amazing in verses 6 to 8. Abraham, he's the father of faith, but he doubted God a lot. You remember, he... Evidently, Sarah, his wife, was an Old Testament, she was a looker. She was an Old Testament hottie. Because everywhere he went, like the men paid attention to Sarah. So much so that Abraham was afraid for his life, and he lied and said, no, 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 she's not my wife, she's my sister. Gross. Uh, And he did it twice. He did it with Pharaoh, and then he did it with a Philistine king named Abimelech. You're like, gross, she's your sister? You You don't hug your sister like that, you know? That's just weird. So twice he lies about his sister. He has all kinds of doubts that he expresses within his own marriage, but he has so learned that God is faithful. Listen to what he says in verses 6 through 8. Uh, the servant says, how's this going to happen? Do I, if she wants proof, do I, do I come back and get Isaac and take Isaac to her? And Abraham says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land... He will send his angel before you, and he will take a wife for my son from there. 
You know what that sounds like? All faith. God's going to do it. You need to go, but God is going to do it. Genesis 24 comes two chapters after Genesis 22. What happens in Genesis 22? Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac. And as he is about to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest, God calls him and tells him to stop, and he provides a ram. Abraham has learned that if God will provide a ram, he can certainly provide a daughter-in-law, right? He has learned that God provides. And while he may have expressed all kinds of doubt, no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. He had all kinds of doubts that he expressed within his own marriage. He had no doubt that God was going to do the right thing for Isaac. He had no doubts about Isaac's marriage. He didn't necessarily always know the right thing to do in his own personal case, but he knew the right thing to do for his son. That sounds like every parent I have ever met. Any of you not, know, not got your own stuff completely straight? Yep. But you know a whole lot better what needs to happen for your kids. And it's true. A lot of times we have to tell our kids, do what I say, not what I did. That's called wisdom. <laughs> I don't want you to have to learn from the same mistakes that I made. So he is all of faith. And in the same way that his servant is commissioned, one of the things that we have to understand is that we are commissioned in the same way to extend God's kingdom, God's plan, into the next generation. Why is Abraham so concerned about who Isaac marries? Because it has to do with the continuity of God's work, this blessing that he's working out. And he says, Eliezer, I need you to go. Servant, I need you to go. I need you to find a wife for Isaac. Because here's the truth. If a person of faith marries a person who is not a person of faith, let's get serious here for a second. There's very little opportunity that those kids will be kids of faith. It could happen. I'm not saying that it won't. I'm not saying that it's impossible. There are shining examples of a a, a spouse of faith who counteracts the um, unfaithful example of their uh, other spouse. But the truth is, it usually doesn't work out that way. That if you want to have kids who are faithful to the Lord, you need both a mom and a dad who will be faithful to the Lord. And here's what Abraham says. The promised land is Isaac's home. God has given this property to him. Do not take him away from this. You go find the woman. You don't don't take him to the woman. You bring the woman to him. Full of faith, but also ready to make sure that God's work continues on to the next generation. When we hear about the Great Commission, we, we we think really big. We think really distant. We don't think right here. And the truth is, when we think about the Great Commission, the Great Commission begins at home. The Great Commission begins at home. Because if you can't plant gospel seeds with your next of kin and your neighbors, why in the world would you think that God has entrusted you to take it to the nations? The the Bible says that if somebody aspires for leadership in the church, uh, two of the things that you should do immediately is look at their spouse and look at their kids. Because if they can't lead spiritually at home, why in the world would you think that they could lead in the church? If they can't lead their own family, how are they going to lead God's family? And in the same sense, he's saying that here. If we can't take the Great Commission to our own kids then don't expect your church or the International Mission Board to put their stamp of approval. So yeah, here's a good gospel-showing guy. If you can't do it in your home. This is a really big issue about passing things on to the next generation. It's all throughout the scriptures. Listen to a few of them. Uh, Genesis 18, 19. I love the way that this is said. Um, we're missing a slide. Go back to Genesis 18, 19. There it is. Um, it's, it, it, it says this in the most blatantly strong language possible. This is God talking about Abraham. I have chosen him that he may, what's the word? 
command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Guys, you are commanded. It's not just Abraham. Anyone of faith who descends from Abraham by that faith lineage is commanded to teach our kids the way of the Lord. Exodus 12, 26 and 27 is talking about the Passover celebration. And there's going to come a day when, when you get far enough down the line that they don't actually remember the Exodus event. And they're going to say, hey, uh, when your children say, what do, you, what do you mean by this Passover service where you kill the lamb and you eat it and you take the blood and put it on the blood posts? He says, you shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. You've got to explain it. You've got to tell the next generation. I love the way Psalm 78 says this. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and of His might and of the wonders He has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn, and that they may arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Do you think God is concerned about paying it forward to the next generation? Oh, He is. Family ministry is... God's idea. So the servant is commissioned to help extend God's plan into the next generation. Find a wife for Isaac. So he gets going. It's about a 500-mile trip, which by camel, um, you're talking probably three to four weeks. Yet the Bible records this whole trip in like warp speed. It says like he leaves and he gets there. Like that's, that's the, they're not concerned so much about the journey. They're concerned about the destination. And uh, when he gets there, he prays. Listen to how the scriptures say this in verses 10 through 14. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and he departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham. That is not, it is his God too. He's just a servant. He's he's kind of stating this in third person. Please grant me success today. And show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed uh, for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Interesting fact. Genesis chapter 24, and this is the first recorded prayer in the Bible by someone who came from a pagan background, Eliezer of Damascus, praying this awesomely sincere prayer. It's not formal. It's not premeditated. It's like, all right, I have obeyed, and I am here, and I'm about ready to start my American Idol search for a bride search. This is going to be hard. I've been commissioned to find a Wife for my master's son. God, this ain't going to work if you don't help me. It is amazingly spontaneous. It is not formal. And where do you think Eliezer learned how to pray? 
from Abraham. He's a disciple maker. It's awesome to see. He's not just discipling his own family. He's discipling others. And, and this is so awesome. It says that he gets there. He, 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 he is taking this long journey. He gets there. He gets to the well because he knows that's the, that's the watering hole. where everybody comes. And I love this. This is not the purpose of the Bible, but I'm going to throw it in there anyways. That's why I'm standing far away from my, my Bible. This is not biblical. <laughs> Eliezer is so pious. He gets ready to pray. He even makes his camel's meal. Do you see it? He had, he had you know, like if they could fold their paws, he, he would have them fold their paws. It, it is not without significance that he has the camel's meal, and the very first thing he does when he gets there is he says, let us pray. God help. Help. And he assumes that this is going to be a very long and arduous process. I mean, and then he asks God for some specifics. He says, I'm going to ask her this. She needs to say this. And by this, I will know that she's the specific one. He's not saying, God, bring me a group of eligible bachelorettes by which we can have some carnal kind of competition, see how they look in a bikini, see what kind of talents they have, and then I'll pick one. No, it's not, it's not that at all. He says, let me, I'm asking you for specific guidance because I've obeyed and this is not going to work out if you don't show up. And then look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, my paraphrase, before he said amen, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Dude, that's like, you know, hair on the back of your neck, tingly. Like, he, he opens his eyes, and there's a woman there who was not there when he started praying. That's incredible. What I think is most incredible is in the servant's prayer, he has complete confidence in God's leadership as he's following him. And that's, that's an application point for us. We should be confident in God's leadership when we, or as we, follow him. Now, the reverse of that is also true. If you want to have confidence in God's leadership, but you choose not to follow him, you just forfeited your confidence. Confidence in God and obedience to God always go hand in hand. And I, I get people go, well, you know, God hasn't done anything for me. Well, no wonder. Have you, like, looked at your life for the last three years? You have not done anything to follow him, but you think God is on the hook to bless you and, and make your life incredible when you don't give five cents for following God. Everybody wants God's blessings, right? Everybody wants God's blessings, but nobody wants to be obedient. Everybody wants daddy's money. No, everybody wants to love daddy. It's just the way of the world. And so as this servant is expressing all of this incredible confidence, he is doing it because he is following him as faithfully as he knows. What I love, and this is kind of hidden a little bit, is he goes through this whole thing about how is he going to know who he's looking for? He doesn't say, you know, let her dimensions be this and let her be blonde hair, blue eyed, and let her be this, that, and the other. He says, no. He goes, when I ask her to give me water, let her say, oh yeah, absolutely. I'd be glad to give you water and I'll give water to your camels as well. Now, he had 10 camels after a journey, three-week journey like that because camels can go a long time. But when it's time to fill back up, you're going to be at the pump for a while. Um, and each of those camels could have easily, at a minimum, taken 25 gallons of water before they were satiated. So you're talking, at a minimum, 250, maybe some commentators say as much as 1,000 gallons of water. So when she says, hey, I'll, I'll give you water, but I'll be glad to water your camels as well, 
She just took on a part-time job. This is not, hey, let me go get you a nice glass of iced tea. No, 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 no. This is like, this is like extreme hospitality. And the point is this. The servant is not, and, and hear me right, I, I'm calling this out because I'm a product of my own time. He's not looking for compatibility on 29 points of compatibility. He's not looking for chemistry. He's looking for character. He's looking for someone that's willing to serve others, that's not so consumed, so narcissistically consumed with himself that I ain't got time for that. Somebody who's going to interrupt their schedule to serve others because he knows if this is going to be the kind of person who's going to help fulfill God's lineage, that it's got to be a whole lot more than just looking for somebody who's beautiful. And, and, and for young people here, I, I just can't tell you how much this is needed today because um, we can laugh at the bachelor or the bachelorette, but it's the same way y'all pick your spouses too. You don't fall in love, you fall in lust. And then when that, that feeling has evaporated, the only thing in front of you is divorce. It's wrong. The Bible says there's a whole lot better things than you can do than a, wait, wait for a social science test to figure out whether they're the right person for you. We've left God out of the equation in the way that most of us even pursue looking for a spouse is completely not different than the rest of the world. Don't do it. Put God first. Put character first. Put faith first. Because that's what God wants. That's what God wants. The servant has the briefest of conversations with Rebecca. He doesn't even know who she is yet. We know because the narrator has told us it's Rebecca. He's related. Um, brief conversation, but he had just prayed. He opens up his eyes and she's there. Hmm. And she has agreed to give him a jar of water and to water his camels. Hmm. Something's going on here. Could it be that God has already answered my prayer? I said, amen. She's right there. Boom. That's never happened before. So look at verse 21. It says, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. God was up to something. And like, he's got to stand back. He's got to be like, hmm. 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 He's done it already. And according to the way that the scripture unfolds, before he even started to pray, she was already walking towards the well. Now, what would have happened if he hadn't prayed? I don't know. I'm not going to assume that she got teleported somewhere else. But he was acknowledging God's role in this. So he keeps quiet, keeps quiet, trying to figure out exactly what is going on. So finally, he asks who she is. We already know. And then when he finds out that she's a relative of Abraham's, he's like, oh, hot diggity dog. This is awesome. Verses 26 through 28, he rejoices. It says this, the man bowed his head and he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward, uh, toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. He still has not told her. Hey, sweetheart, you ready to uh, go meet the man of your dreams? Like he hadn't told her what his mission is. He just is, he's rejoicing in the fact that God's will has become that much clearer. She's eligible. She's part of the right family. And he rejoices. And again, we see his piety as he's rejoicing in God's faithfulness. So at this point, we know the, ser the servant is pretty stoked, to say the least. He's like, wow, I pray, boom, there she is. I ask her who she is, boom, she's like Abraham's distant relative. She's the right kind of person. 
And Rebecca's family gets thrown into a tizzy too. It says that he, he took all kinds of goods uh, from Abraham, gifts, and so he put gold bracelets on her wrists and he gave her a ring and she goes running home. She's like, I just met this stranger at the, at the bar and um, he, he gave me all these gold bangles and all this kind of stuff. Verse 30, you get introduced to her brother, Laban, who plays a significant role later on and you can start to figure out something about Laban's character. Verse 30, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus spoke the man to me. He went to the man. He wasn't interested in what the man was up to. He was interested in what the man had. He's got gold? Gold. All right, I need to go meet this guy. Maybe he's got something for me too. So the family begins to offer him some hospitality. He says, hey, why don't you come? We can take care of your camels. We can give you some food. And what I love here is um, the proof that um, Abraham's servant was not a Baptist. It's, it's really clear. It's almost explicit. Verse 33. Oh, where is it here? Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And they said, speak on. Absolute, pre- he's a Presbyterian. He's something like that. I don't know what he is. But he, he refused food put, between, put, put before him. Why? Because he wants to know. All right, we're getting closer to figuring out God's will here. I got something I need to tell you because I'm not just excited that you're part of Abraham's family. I'm here on a specific mission and I need to tell you what it is because you might not want me to stay in your house tonight once I tell you I'm taking your daughter away. And he says, far be it from me to enjoy the comforts of hospitality without putting the mission first. In the same way as servants of God, we are called to exert ourselves to complete God's work. Would you push away from the table before the mission's over? Oh, I'm afraid. Man, people today, hey, we need you to change diapers on babies in the nursery. Oh, man, that's not my spiritual gift. I don't think it's anybody's spiritual gift. It's called service. It's not necessarily fun. We... we we serve when it's convenient. We serve when it's fun. We serve when it's exciting. We don't exert ourselves. And yet he refuses the hospitality of his hosts to tell them of what God was doing. And he repeats the whole story. Uh, he, Abraham, Isaac, uh, child of promise. He's getting married. I came here. I prayed. Here's what happened. I opened my eyes. She's there. Uh, you happen to be related to Abraham. And he's not merely repeating himself. He's reasserting what God is doing. He's retelling the story with great excitement. And he's absolutely convinced that God has been involved in this. But yet he doesn't have to convince them. He kind of says, here's what's happening. And then he sits back and he wants to see how they react. Because if God is in it, they will know it too. Right? You ever try to convince someone of God's will? That doesn't work out too well. Everybody has to discover God's will for themselves. And so he doesn't strong arm it. He, he sits back. And he challenges them to respond, but then he leaves it in their court. Verse 49, Now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. You just let me know. Here's what's happening. Here's why I'm here. This is my mission. Here's what God has done. Are you in? Are you out? Tell me. I'll enjoy the meal, and I'll go my separate way. The family thinks through this, and they agree. God's hand is all in it. So they party that night. Uh, they party like it's 1999. They have fun. They have a big old party. They eat a lot of food, and God has been at work. 
He wakes up the next morning, servant wakes up the next morning, says, all right, pack your bags, we're ready to go. Mom and brother go, oh, snap, now? Like, can't we wait just a little bit? Like, hey, why don't, servant, why don't you go ahead, and in 10 or 12 days, we'll send Rebecca. He's like, nope, we've got it in it, let's get it done. Why, why are we going to dilly-dally? Let's get it done. So they say, all right, well, we don't like this, but Rebecca's old enough, let's ask her. What's Rebecca say? It's not a long speech. She says, I will go. I will go. What I love about this is as the servant is picking a wife for Isaac, he is picking a wife who responds to God the exact same way that Abraham did when God called him to move. I need you to go. Where? I'll tell you when you get there. Heck no. I want a map. I want, a, I, want a, I want a quick trip. I want, I, want, I want destination. I want to know where the hotels and the, the restaurants are. You, you just want me to keep walking? You'll tell me when I get there? Yep, go. All right. And Rebecca meets a man last night who says, God has a wonderful plan for your life and I, I can't wait to introduce you to the man of your dreams. Next morning, let's go. I will totally appropriate for a woman that is going to continue God's line of uh, this holy seed. The question for us is, if you were put in the same situation as your yes on the table, how difficult, how difficult would what God asks you to do have to be for you to tell him no? Now, I'm, I'm sure in the room here, you have told God no right? Like, don't nod your head, don't raise your hand. You've told God no, and you have lived long enough to regret it every day of your life. Don't tell God no. Put your yes on the table. And here's, here's the deal. We have a lot of young people here, okay? Let me say something really specifically to you. God has commissioned you to be an agent for his glory. That does not mean you need to be a full-time vocational missionary. You know what it does mean? It means if you're a pharmacist, if you're an engineer, if you're a nurse, if you're whatever, why do that in America? Why not do that overseas? Where you are there fulfilling your profession, but perhaps part of a missionary team while you're there intentionally using your degree and your training, you're also obeying the Great Commission. And you perhaps get to be a part of a missionary team that you have a full-time job, but your church is a church that's reaching the nations, not a church that's pursuing the American dream. There are all kinds of ways for you to be obedient to God's call without having to be a church person for the rest of your life. You can use the way that God has gifted you. Just international business is a thing. Uh, you, have a, you have a degree that's marketable. God may be using that to call you to the nations without calling you in a traditional missionary sense. That You are using your gifts and talents in a place where you have the opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission in a way you'll never do it back here. So don't just pray about what your degree is. Pray about where God wants you to use it. Because it might not be in Rock Hill. It might be in Abu Dhabi. It might be in India. It might be in China. And you will never regret doing what God has asked you to do. In conclusion, verses 62 through 67, the story ends like a fairy tale. It's, it's tied up with a nice, neat little bow, happy ending. Isaac and Rebekah meet for the first time. Listen to verses 62 through 67. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahara'oi and was dwelling in the Negev. 
And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening time. And he lifted up his eyes and he saw, behold, there, were, there was a train of camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, camel and said to the servant, who is that man who's walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother. Don't you just want to go, yes! It's a great little story. Fairy tale ending. And it's satisfying for everyone involved. Uh, Isaac doesn't, or I'm sorry, Abraham doesn't die till the next chapter. There's no more recorded speech of Abraham. So his last words are, please don't let her marry Canaanite. He's still alive. He meets her, but he dies pretty quickly. Isaac's got to be happy. Because not only is she a person of character, the Bible does say she happened to be very beautiful. She's seeing the fulfillment of what this servant has told her is God's plan. Everyone is happy. But I don't think anyone is perhaps happier than the servant who had been accorded this most incredible of responsibilities. He was the one whose neck was on the line, so to speak. And here he gets to say, Isaac, Meet Rebecca. Rebecca, meet Isaac. He gets to see the fruit of probably at least two months worth of work. Day and night. He hadn't thought about anything else. No multitasking. On a journey, on a camel, for three weeks. There, on a journey. He, he had to be so saddle sore, he had to be praising Jesus to be back home after riding a camel for six weeks. And here's the point. For all of us, we should rejoice when faithful followers get to see the fruit of God's good work. There are people who labor their entire life and don't necessarily see fruit. Here, he sees the fruit of God's work. The next generation is intact. The plan has been successful. We're ready to move forward. Yes, the servant had to work hard. Yes, Rebecca had to sacrifice. She had to leave her family. And while God never speaks audibly or shows up in, in, in any kind of explicit form, He is behind the scenes working through all of the normal circumstances of life. And I don't know about you, I'd love for God to show up and do some kind of crazy miracle. That's not the way He operates. He works in the humdrum everydayness of life. And He will do the same for you. Abraham's servant isn't the only one who's supposed to see the fruit of God's good work. The, the Bible promises if we will follow him faithfully, you too can see fruit. Here's the deal. Planting a garden is hard work. Getting the fruit means you have to establish the root. You know, you, you don't grow a garden to have good roots. You grow a garden to have good fruits. But without good roots, you won't have good fruits. You've got to break up some ground. You've got to care for it. You've got to tend it. You've got to nurture it. And in due season, it will bear a harvest. Exert yourself for the Great Commission. And for you, that might not mean going overseas. It might mean not just hoping your kids get some amorphous idea of what you believe. The most disheartening thing in working with young adults is they have no idea what they actually believe. What, what they believe is mom and dad went to church for 18 years and I went with them. So what do you believe in? What is the, the core of your theological belief? Going to church. That's terrible. 
They like to say that our values are caught more than they're taught. That is absolutely not true. Vague generalities of values are caught, but unless there is explicit teaching, there is nothing that is taught. So people have this vague notion of what they believe, but there are no blanks that are filled in. Don't be that kind of family. Teach your kids why you go to church. Teach your kids why you tithe. Teach your kids why you serve. Some of you show up every Sunday to do something at church. Your kids don't have a clue why you're doing it. They just think it's, it's a habit. Explain the why behind what you do. That's where you start to see fruit. Taking seriously your commitment to the bride of Christ. You may never be in a situation to commission a servant to go find a wife for your son. But God has already provided a bride called his church that he wants all of his people committed to. For some of you, that means that some of you, because you're young and you're in college, will flit around from church to church. That's not God's plan for you. I don't even know you and I can tell you that. God wants you in a family that you can count on and can count on you. It's a two-way street. So for some of you, the point of application is sign up for the new members class. Come on. I I can tell you this. We're not a perfect church, right? Uh, All of the Northside Baptist Church members said amen. We're not a perfect church because even if we were, I would mess it up enough to screw it up all by myself. And so would you. But you will not find a church that will love you better. You'll not find a church that won't give you the shirt off its back. The point is this. How are you faithfully serving the Lord. Abraham started off with, don't you let her, don't you let him marry that woman. And what we end up is with a, what we end up with is a tale of faith and a tale of blessing and a tale of fruitfulness that is good for all of us to hear. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you that even out of a last word, like, please don't let him marry her, that our faith can be encouraged, that we can think about how we are exerting ourselves for your glory, how we are committed to your bride, the church, um, how we are passing on what is so precious to us to the next generation, and not taking that for granted, but explicitly letting people know why we do what we do. Father, there are many applications here, and I, I could not, with as diverse as our crowd is, say this, 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 or this to every single person here but you have called us to faithfulness because you are faithful and you want us to exhibit your character. So Father, where we are not faithful today, challenge us and speak to our hearts. Thank you for the mercy and forgiveness that you offer us in Christ, that even though as imperfect as our followership is, you allow us to repent and to start over anew today. We pray, Father, that you will help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.